0: It's got to have a story. It's got to be connected to the community. It's got to be intentional. There's got to be the leaders and the anchors from leasing to the raising of capital to the building. I mean, we we in the multifamily, uh, we're working on one right now. Our question was, can we build something we'll be proud of in 30 years? What do we hate about multifamily developments in our community that looks so homogenized? I mean, doesn't look like love got even in the program. Because what used to be built by master builders who had a passion for what they're building is now built by spreadsheets and private equity. That by the time you get to the finishes, all the love's missing. If it was a lady, she'd be wearing a junkie dress, no makeup, her hair's not fixed, no earrings. I mean, it's like their goal was to disappoint me at a radar stand. Hey guys, welcome
1: back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. I know what you're thinking, here goes Chris talking about Fort Capital again, but guys, it's important to me. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas. That's why my Twitter handle is Fort Worth Chris. We have a track record of transacting more than 1.4 billion in assets throughout Texas. That's crazy to me, 17 years ago, I bought my first house for $100,000. The team over at Fort is currently looking to acquire class B industrial deals between 10 and $75 million throughout the major markets of Texas. In fact, Fort Capital was named the fastest growing real estate company in Texas by Inc Magazine last year. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. I woke up excited, about today. Uh, today's going to be a beast of an episode. I have a good friend of mine, John Marsh, who I have been spending uh, quite a bit of time with the last few months and and made one of the biggest impacts on me almost immediately. And today, after today's episode, y'all will understand why that is. John's an amazing man. John, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome.
0: Oh man, I'm excited! This is going to be a lot of fun. I love hanging out with smart folks, and you are. And and your podcast is great. Amazing number of episodes, and it's added tons of value to me. So um, we're looking forward to it.
1: Well, right back at you, man. Um, so you, you'll this will make more sense to everybody once we're done. But um, you have a line, and you said, "Everywhere I look, something is broken or undone." buildings and marriages, and we've spent time talking about both, and that's what we're going to do today. But can you just kind of start with what that means to you and and why you kind of see the world that way and then what you do about it?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I've realized that so much of what you go through is important of where you're going to. No time is really wasted. And so my story and my my life story, me and my wife's story in our company is that we were broken. And in that brokenness, we saw something that was beautiful. And and there is beauty in broken things, whether we're restoring cities, and we have done a lot of that. Um, we've done over 275 structures in 10 square blocks in our city. We started over 60 businesses to create flourishing in our city um, from broken buildings and, and broken dreams. But but that all came out of the fact that Ash and I, um, I grew up, my mom, 13 years, tried to have a child, couldn't adopted me. And 18 months later, had my little brother. And she said, all I ever want to do was spoil you. All I wanted to be was a mama. And so she, was, she did a great job of spoiling me. Um, I was A, B on a roll up till I was about 13 years old and stepped across the line with a little girl and rode my bike to her house and we had sex and I went against what I believe was, um, you know, my family and against God. And I started rebelling and rebellion is a powerful thing. I rebelled. My brother didn't, and he was blessed because he didn't. And it cost me heavy because I did. Um, and this, this took my life as a step-by-step as step into coming into a future of where I was going to be experiencing more and more brokenness because you don't plant corn and get apples. So I ended up 17 years old. I tried drugs for the first time and decided I wanted to be a world-class drug addict. Ended up (laughs) uh, blowing up my life. And by 23 years old, I was a million and a half dollars in debt, $99,000 overdrawn. Going through a divorce with Ash, my wife, and she had left me for one of my employees. And I was hooked on meth. So going in the attic of my house to hang myself, I kept hearing, kill yourself. I, and and then I heard a different voice say, no, just die to yourself. Lay your life down so you can find it. And that's what happened to me. Um, my entire life changed in the attic of that house. And I began to find a new path. And so out of that broken life of shattered dreams, there's been all this beauty come out of it where now Ash and I steward about $1.7 billion worth of redemptive real estate in nine cities, helping couples, companies, and communities flourish. So, I wouldn't be where I am if I hadn't been through what I went through. So that's why everything we see, we still see beauty and broken things.
1: And that, my friends, is the uh probably the most intense intro I've ever come across. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little further with it. So you go up into that attic and you hear that uh that voice in your head and Maybe there's a lot of people that haven't taken it to that extreme, but they have that voice in their head that's telling them there's something better. What did you do after you kind of had that moment? What 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 did the next week, day, year, what did it look like going forward? How did you make the the change? Because being addicted to meth is no joke.
0: No, and really, I, to go back to the attic, I'd planned that attic. And, you know, I kept hearing, kill yourself, kill yourself. Your life isn't worth living. And both of those things are true. I mean, I was in a bad situation wanting to reconcile my wife. We both had lawyers fighting for custody of our son, and I was watching her go out on dates with one of my employees. So it was, it was a situation where I'd failed. If the person that's the closest to you likes you the least, something's really wrong. And, um, and so I was in that place, and I laid down on that plywood floor and just, just weeping. I, I really wasn't scared of dying. I was scared of living. But, but laying my life down gave me, you know, if there's hope in your future, there's power in your present. And bam, I got hope. And when I come out of that place, she was waiting downstairs. I was like, hey, baby, I, my life just changed. She said, you're a liar. She didn't believe me. I said, well, you'll see. A man of integrity, his feet line up with his mouth. And if people don't want what you got, you got to wonder what you have. And so I, I did get hope. And that's one thing. Hope is like air. Everybody needs it. But the hope began to be that there's something better in the future for me than what I've experienced. And so what I began to do is get wise counsel. This is a key. Is began to get around the kind of man I wanted to be. And everybody will say, well, how do you find great mentors? Man, they're everywhere. I feel like a mosquito in a nudist colony. They're everywhere. (laughs) You just got to know what to look for. And I tell people, if you want to find a great mentor, have someone that speaks to your heart, not your head. And if your heart burns when they're talking, ask for another conversation. Say, hey, 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 uh, could you give me 30 minutes a month? Most folks will give you 30 minutes a month. And when they do, show up. <laughs> if we're going to take them to lunch, don't eat. Let them eat and you talk. But, but get someone in your life that, that they harmonize and make your heart sing. And then opportunity began to come slowly at first. But if you look at your daily disciplines, that's the second thing I changed the way I live daily. However you live daily is the game. If I watch how you live daily, I can tell you where you're going to be in 10 years if you don't change. And I say there's five five areas to focus on, faith, family, fun, fitness, and finance. That's my five Fs. And so if you've got a much uh, more sophisticated plan for your finances than you do for your family or your faith. I'd encourage you to get some detail on those things, intentionality.
1: One of the things we talked about, it's also a a word that starts with F, was forgiveness. And you and I have talked a lot about that. And um, you said something along the lines of for you to resurrect your marriage with, with Ashley there had to be a lot of forgiveness, both her forgiving you for what you had been through and then you forgiving her for what she had been through. Um, you know, a lot of folks, if if their wife was dating one of their employees, they might not ever be able to get over that. Can you just speak a little more to what you went through to to forgive and, and what forgiveness does for somebody's life, how it can change their life?
0: Suffering. Forgiveness is suffering. and the first thing about it I was deceived about it when I asked the definition of forgiveness and what it how you apply it, if your definition and your application is is not um, aligned with the truth, it, it won't work. And so forgiveness is not forgetting the offense happened. It's not stuffing it under the rug till the rug doesn't touch the floor anymore. It's not saying, hey, that person's always going to be that way. Um, forgiveness is something you receive and give away because you can't manufacture the stuff. So, so you got to receive it first. Is personal forgiveness. The hardest person you'll ever forgive you because you know why you did it, but you can't give what you don't have or live. So, and the second thing, and the biggest for me is I thought forgiveness was a vaccination. Once you get it, you're done. It's one and done. Thank goodness I forgave them for that. No, no, no. It's a second-by-second, minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, day-by-day choice of your will. And you may be living 29 days of hell today and one day of heaven, and, but but as you grow, you like now I think I'm living, you know, 29 days of heaven and a day of hell, but I'm still pushing hell back. There's still days and times where I struggle with what happened in mine and Nash's relationship. It's quick. Maybe I see the person she loved me for here in town, still lives here. You know, maybe maybe something, um, I think about it, oh God, and remember when, a- and I got a choice, I'm the gatekeeper of my mind, I can either exercise this gift of forgiveness on that situation, that little bitty, another dose of forgiveness, and say, no, I-, I choose to forgive that, I choose, or I can just keep messing with it and throw some wood on the fire and see if that makes the fire go out.
1: Yep. A lot of folks that listen to this—it's a business podcast, it's a real estate podcast. A lot of, um, you know, guys in their, you know, mid thirties, late twenties, early forties. Part of the later part of your career is you've worked with a a lot of folks on the concept of marriage. I just wanted to start with like, what is what typically happens to people that are kind of hard charging, entrepreneurial business there tends to be a pattern of what could happen in a marriage and you've worked with so many of these people, like what have you learned? And for folks that are, you know, what, no matter where they are in their marriage, like what um, ultimately are you helping provide and try and teach people uh, over time in, in the, the, uh, the work that you do with married couples?
0: Well, uh, I think that, you know, the thing I've seen is that uh, most people make a, a mistress out of money and success, and so they wonder why. I mean, I think I won Ash by false advertising. I used the same gifts I used to build great projects to win her. I told her you're going to be the center of my world. I made her feel amazing. I sold her just like we do big deals, and then, and then I changed the deal. False advertising. Now that I got you, check the box off. And I thought marriage was about sex and supper. And as long as those two were going good, I thought that thing was humming along. Now, one of those stopped working. I thought, oh, man, we may have problems here. But, but there's a lot more to marriage than sex and supper. I mean, it's, it's a complex thing. In fact, most of the time, the good Lord sends you the grit sandpaper you need. And for most of us, hard chargers, it's heavy grit paper, 20 grit or 36 grit, because we need we need to change. And so our compatible opposite comes into our life. And we think, man, she's a dream squisher. I tell you what, I, this is the person that most aggravates me in my whole life. And I'm married to her. I'm hooked myself to the Unabomber. But, <laughs> but, but what you have to start getting to is that marriage is designed to be a tremendous blessing. But it's going to take more work than going to the gym. It's going to take more work than building a huge portfolio of real estate or leading large teams because, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's designed to be a change agent in our life. So what I do is I help show them that they really, I mean, think if we put the amount of time and everybody's, the minute I say this, they're going to go, Oh, who can do that? I know anybody good at making excuses is going to struggle at doing anything else, but put as much time into your marriage as you put into your, your, your best deals. Put as much intention and love and care, because if not, you're going to wreck your family. I mean, would you consider a guy that's a success, that's made hundreds of millions of dollars, he's tan and fit as he can be, everybody in the community loves him, and his kids and wife hate him? Is that guy a success? No way. And um, so we have to make it a high priority. I mean, and if you want it to be a high priority, just show me your plan. I mean, if I if I told you it's a high priority to develop 100 acres outside of town with this industrial complex, and they said, "Well, you got you got any you got to perform on this thing, or you got any great plans?" No, 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 no. I'm winging it, but it's a big high priority. It's like, dude, your marriage is more complicated than developing 100 acres. I mean, so so that's the deal. Have a plan have a plan for success and 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 work that plan as if it's a priority and and don't be entrepreneurially promiscuous. I mean, we get so, it's so easily excitable to do a deal, but it's not, when you go home and talk to your wife and sit down and listen to her, it, it's not exciting at all.
1: All right. Opelika. Did I say that right? You nailed it. Opelika, Alabama. Will you describe, what Opelika Alabama was like growing up and then what it was like before you built this wonderful real estate career
0: well i didn't grow up here i grew up about um 2 hours away my wife grew up here um i've been i've been in Opelika since i was about 18 years old or so so i mean i've been here 30 something years and it is home i love this place sometimes you get you get in your heart a place that you didn't come from and it's more home than your home. But when I got here, it was just a depressed place. It had lost vision. And delight people. We ask three questions every time we go into a new place. Who are you? Who do you serve? And who's going to pay for it? And every company and every every community that can't answer those questions. If you don't know who you are, you'll try to be somebody else. And, and to tell you the truth, I'd be a horrible Chris. I got enough trouble being John. And so a lot of communities and, and and developments try to be somebody else. We're going to be the Silicon Valley of the South. No, you're not. You, you can't be somebody else. you got to figure out who you are. And they had forgotten who they were. Opelika is an industrial community from the past. It was textiles. And so we had huge textile mills. We had DP, Diversified Products, the first uh, weightlifting uh, exercise company of that scale. And we had Ampex, Digital Tapes. We build and make things here. A lot of machine, um, machinists and hands-on guys. That's why the car industries are flooding to these areas. Alabama's the number one um, car manufacturers in now in the country because we've got such a workforce of people who have skills. But Opelika had died. It was all boarded up. And when when we fell in love with it here, we bought a junky old house that um, started a and and worked on it for six and a half years, one paycheck at a time, living in five hundred square foot. And uh, when we got done, my wife said, well, "What do you want to do?" I said, "Do another one." And um, I'd found something I was passionate about. I was in the automobile business at that time, and um, I fell in love with structures. And we started buying up residential triplexes, duplexes, and began to renovate them and um, relocate them. And that's what what happened. It was broken. And so, at the time when I was coming out of that brokenness, my whole town was broken. And Ash and I just said, "Well, what if we just, what if we just made a difference in one house? So one house at a time." We think we do sophisticated real estate development with love. That's the only—it's got all the sophistication that any other developer would have, but we do it with love, and and that's a game changer. Um, Love makes stuff look different. And I would assume that
1: especially early on, you know when the typical you know real estate person thinks about real estate, they start throwing out you know big words, cap rate, you know, leverage, you know, lease rates, et cetera, et cetera. i'm gonna guess you didn't kind of start with that. Um, it wasn't driven by the, the the you know the the keywords that we have, and I think a lot of people that are in places like this where I think there's more people on this earth and, and and you know this better than anybody that think, "Man, I could really make a difference here." But they look around and they say, "You know, if I put too much money into this house, there's no house like this. There's no market that would serve something like this." So my my question is kind of, what did you learn early on that showed that there was a market for something that for so long there had been nothing before and you kind of created something that you know, from what we've talked about exists kind of everywhere.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. And I, you're exactly right. I didn't understand any of the terminology. And anytime you come into a world of, of 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 any type of work, one of the things I do now is begin to understand the vocabulary so you can speak the language. But all I knew is these were junky things. And I knew I loved junky things. And I really didn't see any real money in it. I just thought it'd be cool. And I, I, I've been always chasing my passion. So we we started restoring these houses. I didn't have any money. So we would lease with purchase option them. They were sitting there vacant when they were paying the property tax and wasn't any power on them. So they say, how about I give you no money down and payments of $200 a month for the first year and 300 the second year, and then I'll pay you off. And, and we'd fix them up. And it was just, um, slowly by slowly, we started to see, you know, I was before this business, I was in the salvage yard and, um, and in uh, the rebuild business, we, we rebuilt total Toyota 4Runners, Land Cruisers, Tundras, Sequoias, and Lexus. That's all we did. We do a lot of those. Um, and what I realized is a rebuilt uh, car, nobody wants. Has your car been wrecked? I don't want it. A rebuilt house or remodeled, people are like, ooh, love that thing, remodeled. It's the same thing. I mean, so I said, well, in one venue, it's celebrated, and another one is tolerated. So we, I saw the same kind of things. I didn't have any house guy um, relationships, so I just brought all the car guys. I know we started fixing houses because I figured, hey, a house is like a car with plumbing. It it just sits still, and the car moves. So we started fixing <laughs> these things, and um, next thing you know, I had a lot going. I mean, I had like 12 or 15 construction jobs going around our city and I didn't know any better, so i do fixed pricing and guaranteed time frames on historic renovation. I didn't know you shouldn't do that. So I just <laughs> did. Um, and everything I could say, I started out at the as being the stupidest guy in the room. But uh, so we were doing that. I'm getting a lot of business and we're finishing them on time, and I'm making some money at it. And um, and what ended up happening, the city came to me and said, buddy, you gotta get some license. You can't be doing all this work without license. <laughs> I said, Oh, sorry, didn't know I needed license. <laughs> so I had to go get some license and um and and work through that process. But but what one of my I met a man when I was broke and broken and he grew up in a mill village with a high school education, ended up running the largest real estate company in the world. He out built Century 21 and he told me, he said, John, I'm gonna treat you like my son. I'd sold him a vehicle and that's how I met him. I said, What does that mean? He said, I'm not giving you any money. But I'm gonna teach you everything I know. And so the first thing he had to teach me, there was three questions he made me answer before he would teach me anything, is how much is enough? What are you going to do when you get enough? What's your living plan? And what's your giving plan? And so I was dumb and broke. I'm like, how much is enough? I need $500 for my power bill, and you're asking me how much is enough? This is a dumb question. You're rich. Help me. But he wouldn't. He just loved me and and taught me. And so what we began to see is I would do nine houses for others and one for me. Nine houses for others, one for me. Well, pretty soon we were doing eight for others and two for us. And over time, we got to the place where we were doing them all for us. And our construction crew today still just does our own work. We still own about 130 properties in these 10 blocks and um, steward our town. We have dedicated our hearts to stewarding 10 square blocks here which we never thought was anything special, ended up being I learned how to understand complex mixed-use developments called historic downtowns. And so we view them with sophisticated planning. And now the largest town we're in doing this is uh, Winter Haven, Florida, where our clients there have about a $200 million portfolio, 80 blocks of, of a downtown, a good portion of it. And the smallest town we're in is 800 people, and our clients there spend 110 million dollars on a town of 800, trying to make it grow. So we've got them all in between. There's these big ones, and then we do projects and portfolio-based stuff. So our projects sometimes will help people in that'll like we did a Kenosha, Wisconsin. We did a project for a big brewery and um, an event business for some guys, and then some of our portfolio things are you know, but much bigger than that. So I know we got off the house thing, but it just grew, started learning and step-by-step step, being faithful. We never took outside capital from anyone. Ash and I just personally guaranteed everything at the bank and put our butts on the line through the parks to a plane off a cliff and jumped with it. And the banks helped teach me a lot. Those yeah, boys taught me a lot. <laughs> yeah not how to make money, but how to pay money. And so I had to learn how to, I was 30 days from failure every, you know, every, every time I took on a new project, because that's when the first payments came in.
1: Is it fair to say that um, to do these, you know, kind of restoration projects, especially on a, you know, where you're basically changing an entire city, one of the key ingredients is you can't have short-term money. You can't have these three to five-year performas. You have to have a 20 to 30 year vision with capital that will that will stand behind that and my guess is the first few years don't look you know eye popping but you look over 30 years and it's it's way better than you could ever imagine so you you really couldn't get into this with short term money could you it has to be long term patient money
0: you know, actually, there's both. And it's interesting because, remember, our projects, we don't use a lot of out, So people would think we use incentives and outside. We used a little bit of tax credits. But most everything we do makes absolute sense on the performer without any outside incentives. And 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 a lot of times you can do short. I mean, you could do project by project and every project should make sense. We think it's a seven year time horizon for it to start looking where, uh, where a traditional investor would understand. Um, probably the people that we deal with, the minimum hold is 10. And some people are building things that are going to last, you know, generations. I mean, our a question we ask ourselves about our assets is, do they create human flourishing? And that means, does it make not only um, profit, but the place better? Does it make people's lives better? But also we ask, what could we do that would last 50 years and no one be able to undo it. That for the city's good. And if it does that, now, do we think you've got to make profit? Yes. Profit is like gas for the car. You got to have it. But but we also think we have to have a purpose and impact. And we work at the intersection of purpose and profits. One thing we don't do, and we have, we're actually asked about this a lot, we don't build things that are only built through benevolence. A lot of Family offices will reach out to us and think it's a part of their giving arm or, or other people. We just don't build that stuff. I said, I don't like fig trees that don't make figs. I think that's stupid. You go buy the figs at Kroger and stick it on the fig tree and people come take it off. you go buy more figs at Kroger. I said, this thing don't make figs. I wonder if it's a fig tree. And so we build things that make social, spiritual, and economic capital. And, and those are the frameworks we do. So our investments can be attractive at seven years. I mean, Winter Haven, Florida is a good example. They raised $100 million or so from 60 locals that are invested in this uh, community development fund. And, um, and so it, it's, it pays a decent distribution and appreciation on it. And we figured out how to create some really a strategic secondary market so people could come in and out of the asset and um we solve some of the complex problems this year. but a lot of our um a lot of our clients are like us like Ash and I they they're they're investors who love the place and are going to um invest in it and and it's not uncommon for us to use bank leverage you know in the process so you got to be able to you got to be able to pay
1: okay on on people's making people's lives better and and you started with houses Everybody has a good kind of framework for what Opelika was like when you started. And then you kind of moved into commercial. And I think one of the things that, that you told me early on was all the businesses that you started creating. So it wasn't just the real estate, then you had to build businesses that could flourish and ultimately make people's lives better. So um, let's talk about that. How did, how, just to first off, how did you start on the commercial side? Did, was it the same as kind of houses where, there were all these empty buildings in downtown Opelika and you just started, you know, kind of the same way buying and renovating them. How did, what was the difference between residential and commercial?
0: Well, one thing we, you know, there's vacant buildings. The first building in downtown Opelika we bought for $13,000 owner finance, no money down. It was $200 a month uh, too. And so I, I, the whole $200 a month was a key factor in my early thing, because That's about what I figured I could afford on something that was sitting vacant and, it would just about cover, you know, what the people thought the taxes would be. And then we'd find ways to improve it. But we bought the first building. And what we realized, we our mistake was we bought that building. Then somebody came to us and had like um, five buildings. They said, we'll sell you all of them, no money down, and pay you $60,000 to take them. But you got to pay us off in like 36 months. And we were like, oh, okay, great. And so I was super ambitious at this stuff. We didn't have any money. And the great thing about having no money and, and when people say, I put everything on the line. Well, you didn't have anything. Put any, that's like putting zero down if you don't have anything, if you put everything on the line. So it's like being kind of pregnant. Once you're pregnant, you can be a lot more promiscuous. So what we did is we did that and we've had to, we thought people were going to come and flood the building. So our number one mistake was we thought renovation was revitalization and it's not. It's just renovation. So we we fix the buildings, and then we're sitting there drinking Maylocks and trying not to send the keys back to the bank. They were like, oh, Lord, we missed it here. So who's going to, the chamber going to bring the businesses? Who's going to bring the businesses? And then that's our second mistake. You, towns are like wheelbarrows. Somebody's got to push them. So we had to start going out trying to find businesses. We couldn't find any businesses, but you know what we could find? people who wish they could start a business. So then we start a rent-a-dream program. You got a dream and we need some rents. Let's figure out how to get together. And so the first one was a salon, a girl that was a friend of Ash's. She had been in school with Ash and had to drop out at 17 because she got pregnant. And by 20-something, she had been a become a hairstylist and pretty darn good, had a little booth rent, and we started a salon downtown that's still there today. And uh, it it's doing you know, almost $2 million a year now, the salon and boutique was started by this one girl with a dream who loved doing hair. Now she's probably the best in our entire region. So we started and crashed a lot of small businesses. So that's where it started. We just, we'd start one, we'd try something, we'd start a bar, we'd start a, a retail shop or we'd start a this or that. I mean, just the craziest things and 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 just try and bring people in. And so that's that's kind of how the, the, we started filling them because one thing we figured out that we were doing it for rent. We were starting businesses for rent. And then as we got more sophisticated, we started starting restaurants, which was huge um, because what we do in restaurants is start it with a base rents against a percentage that that um, would allow us to have upside and put our gifts toward it. And so first restaurant we started downtown, they hoped they would do $700,000 a year. They did a million seven the second year, two three the third year. And um, our rents were hooked to a percentage of gross that ratcheted from that base at a million, million and a half, two million. So the rents were incredible. And that business sold for a million dollars business only three years after we started it. And we kind of figured we were on to something. All
1: right. We got to dig into this. So you, you, starting the barbershop and the restaurants, I mean, some people might listen and say that is a totally different skill set than what you what you said was buying and renovating buildings is totally different than starting a barbershop and rent, what'd you call it? Rent, renting dreams. Um, yeah.
0: I rent a dream program. And, and y'all have
1: successfully started, I, I think 60 plus businesses, right? So what's the formula? What's the secret? How do, how do these How does this work?
0: Do you want me to tell you how to crash them, which has been the biggest thing I've done, or how to make them work? Let's start
1: there. Let's say, let's start with what you don't want to see happen. How does that, okay. how does the My bad stuff My to do happen? list
0: is sophisticated. So it, don't just pick someone who's good at cooking and put them in the restaurant. Don't just pick somebody who's good at making coffee and put them in a coffee shop. Don't just, what what we realized is there's, that that the trade is only a small piece of of the need of the business. So, 60 to 70% of it is the business, the platform that supports the business, and a very small percentage is the actual craft to do it. So um, what we learned over time is that we don't invest into projects, we invest the people. We pick the leader, and then we ask ourselves specific questions like, some of our clients, we do still launch, we launched two restaurants a couple years ago. We're working on one right now. We launched two in Midland, Texas for our client. There, we launched uh, Opal's Table five years ago. And right at the beginning of the pandemic, we launched uh, Pie Social, which is an incredible. It's a, a pizza restaurant doing, We think we did two, two, 2.5 million last year. I think we'll do close to three this year in a 75-seat pizza place. I mean, we know one thing, nothing can make the impact in a development like a sophisticated, iconic restaurant. But they're hard to build. It's like trying to stuff a bunch of badgers in a box. It's it's a it's not an easy deal. It's like wholesale, retail, manufacturing, entertainment, and daycare all under one roof. I mean, but what else can do almost three million dollars a year in two thousand square foot set like a meth lab and they're against the law?
1: <laughs> Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. We saw this really big shift where, you know, Today, if you're an investor, whether you're a high net worth investor or you're an institutional investor, you have a lot more options if you want to invest in real estate as an asset class compared to maybe five or even 10 years ago. And with the kind of proliferation of options, one of the things that that happened was that, as an investor, you start to have a lot more control. And with control, you can make more demands. And with those demands, you can place those on your managers. And while that might make life difficult for some managers who aren't ready to adapt, one of the key demands is, hey, we need more transparency. Like, I need to know if I'm going to give you $100, how is that $100 doing? Where is it invested? And what is the return on my investment? You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's s-e-e-junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. Okay. Well, then, then the first question, how do you pick a leader? What? what how do you know you found the person? Well,
0: for us, we look first at um, their, what do they believe, because your beliefs drive your behavior. If, if their identity is broken, we can't fix that in, in a small amount of time. Identity is going to derive so much of it. And what we do is we try to match the business with who they truly are, not what they say they want. Once we've identified talent, so like in a restaurant, we'll ask ourselves, how are they at the, at the, at the back of house? how are they at the front of the house, how are they at marketing, how are they at the accounting, and then how are they at um, skills of leadership. And if we don't have those five, we've got about a 200-item list and some personality testing we do, um, five voices, Enneagram, DNA, desires, needs, and affirmation, and the positivity quotient. Those are the five things we test. Once we get this composite of who they are, we run them through a two-day intensive and say it's a go or no go. Like we've got one coming in from, we're working in Moments, Illinois right now for some clients there that, um, they own a factory. They're a billion dollar company that, uh, is, uh, makes freeze dries and raises organic vegetables and spices and freeze dries them and, and distributes them and then makes a, a supplement side of it. Well, they want to save their city. They got 3,500 workers in a town of 3,000 and it's a ghost town. They won't to grow the city, to make it more attractive. So we're looking at an iconic restaurant there. They'll send the operator in, we'll take two days and vet them, and we'll give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down if we think they'll be successful. And then if they are gonna be successful, we'll normally build a, a theme, a platform, and launch it with them and for them and run it 90 days and hand the keys over. So that's one segment of our business around the hospitality side that launches restaurants. Um, in different places, but but what we'll know if we bet on the person, we don't bet on the place, we don't bet on the project. Um, you can't make a bad deal with a good guy, and you can't make a good deal with a bad guy. A a bad deal with a good guy will turn out to be a good deal.
1: Okay, but you but you said that you want to know how they are front of restaurant, back of restaurant, marketing, accounting, so but if, if so I'm assuming that these people these operators have come with some experience in the restaurant industry if not Sometimes. how would you how would you even know if they're good at the back of office or front of restaurant or marketing how do you even know if that's um, we take them through that
0: at? intensive and we test them but but like for example one of the most successful ones we launched in um, in in Midland Texas at opal's table 80 seat fine dining place it is incredible it is just. I mean, it's not the cover off the ball. He was a caterer. He had been a previous chef for like NFL players and then he had a catering business. So we knew he knew how to make food and we knew because caterers are amazing because they cook half their stuff on sternos. You give them actually a dang kitchen, they're just glowing because they're used to doing it MacGyver style. But he didn't have the back of office. So what we did, we started by building a piece of connectivity kind of disciplines that was really some... Some real clunky software that connected the front of the house and the back of the house. Um, and so what, why restaurants fail most of the time is because the front of the house and the back of the house is disconnected in the financials. So imagine if they run 30 days and then a P and L comes in that's 30 days old and they get a chance to adjust. They do that 12 times a year. There's no way they can make meaningful progress really. What we decided is it, we needed it like, to, we needed to know how food and labor was doing daily and actually preferably by the, by the session. So we, we developed some ways to do that. And then later on we found a piece of software we now implement. So what we would do in that say, case is we would help them hire a partner or, or a leader that would run the accounting and back office. And then we built a, um, a back office solution that's now in Austin with a, a team that, that, handles all the restaurants we do now. We send it over and they handle the back office accounting with the software that we install so that they have the best chance of being successful.
1: And and does that person have to, if you're going to open a restaurant with somebody, is, does that person have to be willing to live in the town and be part of the restaurant day in and day out? They can't do this from, you know, their office somewhere in another part of the country.
0: Right, and and understand, we never work for restaurant people. I've never had a restaurant guy hire us to do this. We do this for investors and developers who need this in their communities. Like for us, I hate doing it. Actually, it's like it's painful. It's like making sausage. Nobody likes seeing it. But um, <laughs> but we um, we do it because I can't think of anything any better to to take real estate and radically increase the value of an area than have an iconic restaurant anchoring you know, a place. So that's like we're launching one here in our town right now. We're working on it. And it's simply to take a new community we're building. And, and remember, it's iconic. People don't pay for ordinary. They pay for extraordinary. I never go to your town and say, man, I had the best experience in the world. Where did you go? Ruby Tuesdays. Nobody says that because their goal is to disappoint you at a rate you'll stand. That ain't gonna get us there. We've got to get to the place where you go somewhere. If you, will, I tell you, is what's so interesting. We got one restaurant we helped in a town of thirty five hundred, and it's Stanford, Kentucky, little town. That restaurant sees eighty eight hundred people a month in a town of thirty five hundred. It's not open on Sundays. It does. It's a dry county. It don't have alcohol, and it's only open breakfast and lunch Monday through Thursday, and dinner Friday and Saturday. And it sees 8,800 people a month, and up to 50% of those people are from up to an hour away. So it tells you iconic things. I could, We could put them anywhere. With the right setup, people will drive and pay for excellence. They will not for ordinary.
1: So if we took that pie social, a lot of Midland, Texas... Um... Is the answer to this question? If I had started, um, you know, a, a, the same pizza joint in the same location, kind of the way that you know most people tend to think about it, the reason why Pie Social will do three million, it starts with the person. But then once you have that person, what drives an extraordinary experience? Customer service, good food, like what? What is it? Is it all the above? How do you get the perfect perfect?
0: Well, I mean, some of the perfect, perfect things is first, it's got to follow a golden thread like a movie. How many times have you been watching, you watch a trailer that has been adapted to get us to the place, and then we watch the movie and it's nothing like the movie? Because they took the best pieces of the movie and made a story the movie didn't tell. Well, if we, t- if our name, so here's the questions we asked ourselves because Midland's a funky town. It's crazy. It's like, tri- it's like the Bermuda Triangle or something. <laughs> I mean, it's a strange place, but, but we asked ourselves, are we going to build a pizza place that has a great bar? Or are we going to build a bar that has great pizza? Just that. I mean, here's the thing. If you don't have a clear vision, you've got division. vision. And so that is radically different. What I just said. If we built a bar that has great pizza, or a pizza place that has a good bar, that's to us that's two different themes, two different restaurants. We built a, a bar that has great pizza because we knew we wanted to do forty percent of our sales in alcohol and not in food, because it takes it takes a lot different time to pour a drink than it does make a pizza, and there's a lot more there's a lot more money in pouring drinks and making pizzas. Now, other places, we make it all about the food. So it's dependent on, so we had that. Secondly, we ask ourselves, what's the story we're trying to tell? Like, if you think about it, when the thing people love of Disney World is sophisticated real estate development with incredible programming in a swamp, right? And so if you take the programming off Disney World, its value goes down dramatically. Right? so um, so w- what we we know that same thing, how much of real estate's value is emotional? It's a good question, right? We talk about it often. We say people ought to lo- our, people ought to have a, a a love experience with what we build. They should love what we build. like the problem with our thing, if we ever close a business we started, people have unforgiveness after us because we closed something they loved or sold something they loved. And the biggest mistakes i made is that place that I told you went from nothing to almost $3 million and we sold it for a million um, for business only. We kept the real estate. We let it be sold to a guy who was with the Darden Group. My wife had met him when she worked at uh, Red Lobster years and years ago. He was 19 years with Red Lobster, 11 years without that. I mean, with uh, Longhorn, who Darden bought. So he had 30 years in the restaurant business. He came and bought that restaurant and crashed it in 24 months, took it from 3 million to less than a million. And I never would have thought that would happen. I thought, man, I have just got punched without a cup on. This had messed us up. And the mistake I made was this, is that I thought that people who fly 747s could build 747s, and they can't. So we had built this hybrid iconic thing that was run by very gifted people, and then um, and then it all of a sudden it sells to a guy. The key the guys that run the Darden restaurants is there's an amazing system that they just do what the system says. This thing we other this other thing we had built because I didn't know at the time was like playing jazz. You had to know how to play, and so he ended up crashing it, and uh, we've had to rebuild it. So. That's a challenge, too, is, you know, if you don't have a system, you are the system in any business. And, and so we spend a lot of times, I mean, we work now in our coaching consulting from in the oil industry. We help oil executives be better relationally. We help these towns and teams and companies. But it's always around these core principles we built. I say my life is about four things. I help people grow personally, love God passionately do good work purposefully, and live intentionally. If I do one of those four things, I can't lose for winning. When I'm doing that, I've got supernatural gifts and favor in favor of my life. It's just like shooting fish in a barrel. So we do that across these industries that we help companies, couples, and communities. And that's kind of how we bring it into all of them. So I don't want it to just stay focused on the restaurant. The restaurant is a big piece, but it's the same thing we've got over I guess 700 multifamily units going right now in our different towns. And so, if you ask me about multifamily, I tell you the same story. It's got to have a story. It's got to be connected to the community. It's got to be intentional. There's got to be the leaders and the anchors from leasing to the raising of capital to the building. I mean, we, we, in the multifamily, uh, we're working on one right now. Our question was can we build something we'll be proud of in 30 years? What do we hate about multifamily developments in our community that looks so homogenized? I mean, doesn't look like love got even in the program because what used to be built by master builders who had a passion for what they're building is now built by spreadsheets and private equity. That by the time you get to the finishes, all the love's missing. If it was a lady, she'd be wearing a junkie dress, no makeup, her hair's not fixed, no earrings. I mean, it's like, their goal was to disappoint me at a radar stand.
1: All right, we're at we're then we're at we're at a hot topic because multifamily is all the rage. It has been. You just said it. It's basically manufactured widgets now. Um, so let's let's go a little deeper on this. What in your I, I, and you said you got to ask the story. Um, but let's get into it. What would make a multifamily project that, that you would be proud of? Is it the size of the units? Is it the amenities? Is it walkable? Or is it none of those things? Is it kind of trying to teach a multifamily business to play jazz? Like, how, how do you think about it? This is, this is a big topic.
0: It's really important. And, and the questions, I love every question you say, I want to say yes and. It, it's all those things. I mean, it takes all the sophistication the guys building widgets have plus so I mean a lot of things we've got our multifamily partner that we're working with and our clients they um they have a set floor plan that they've been using for a for a long time. They've kind of dialed in. Not only do they build them but they hold them ten years. so they've really got operational excellence and how we've got to maintain these units. So what we had to ask ourselves is how do we take these these room layouts and ad- adjust the facades to make them attractive knowing we've got this layout of where the stair corridors are and where the elevators and these other pieces. So what we start asking ourselves is we, we say, so our projects start with vision. That's our number one. So our, 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 uh, our momentum method is vision first. Then after you have your vision, you come to strategy, written plan. Then you have team and roles. Then you have alignment, execution, success, and succession. That's our overarching framework for projects, whether it's restaurants, whether it's towns, whether it's multifamily, you name it. So the vision has to be clear and compelling. If the promise is clear, the price is easy. I mean, do we mind spending $200,000 or two fifty dollars a door? Depends on what the prize is. If the prize is clear, if it meets our, our social, spiritual, and economic capital framework, then the price is easy. But um, so what we'll ask is we start with a story before the structure. Our story we started with a local story. The property happened to have a a, a local family called the Taylor family that owned this property. Um, it was called Taylor um, Cotton Company, one of the largest cotton dealers in the world. Well, we named the project the Taylor. Now you can't always do that, but you better have a story of why. I mean, Disney World didn't have a story down there. That wasn't like Cinderella's house. He created that, but he's got a story. I mean. And we think we need to put our projects on irreplaceable real estate. Now, there's a lot of ways we codify irreplaceable, but let's just say irreplaceable real estate and Disney's thing is, what if you could put a multifamily where the Cinderella Castle is? That'd be kind of irreplaceable, right? So we ask ourselves, is this in some way irreplaceable? And for us, that means we love the fact that we put them in places where there's buildings around us that have been built by people who don't live anymore, with materials we don't have anymore, with methodologies we don't do anymore. in in some unique configurations, we can't get approved hardly anymore. That's why we work scattered sites and historic downtown fabrics normally. So, so we start with that story, not structures, and then pull it full into the structure. So we ask ourselves the first things, what's all the non-negotiables? Like for our project, the non-negotiables, we can't adjust the floor plans and and not impact the costs greatly. We can move the windows within the space. And there was some broken thinking that you got to put the window in the center of every room. That's not the case. As we got the lining the, you know, we, what we don't like about new multifamily develop, developments is we think that they lack attention to detail um, and, and best practices in the way they use the materials mostly. I mean, They'll just stick different material types and colors and elevations just to try to make it interesting. And it looks like somebody vomited a, a lot of different uh, <laughs> styles of, of uh, architecture onto a building. I mean, its they're bastardized. They're horrible. And nobody wants one. I mean, they, the developers, the returns, they want it. But nobody's in the community going, oh, I hope they bring me one of them ugly multifamilies. Because you know? in 20 years, it's going to look like Ray Charles built it. So what we did is we came and said okay what constraints do we have and then how could we make this thing what beautiful and the, re, we realized that the only way we could afford to make it beautiful is to simplify our way to beauty not not add our way to beauty we can't afford to build in some of the ways we wish we could today i mean dealing with the strata you know how much masonry can we put on this what other kind of material types what are the windows like what is you know these things but but we've worked our way we think we have some real beautiful designs and we also asked ourselves if our town or this place had grown organically what would it look like and so we didn't make all the buildings the same we made it look like they had grown as the town would have grown which was just some more thoughtfulness um so that's how we did it on the on the design side um getting some real um, great voices around the table. What we play in a lot of the multifamily is a general contractor for vision. We take the high intention and make sure it shows up with the GC. Make sure it shows up in the capital raising. Make sure it shows up in the, you know, in the um, landscaping. Make sure it shows up all the way through the project. Um, because right now most projects are driven by the a spreadsheet, and a lot of the passion is lost.
1: Do the tenants stay longer? Are they willing to pay more uh, than they would otherwise for what you're seeing for something that's intentional and is
0: truly unique? Absolutely. They they live in a story. And I mean, if you look, what is retention? People want to live in something beautiful. Because if you live in a palace, you think you're a prince. And if you live in a prison, you think you're a prisoner. Structures make us. We don't just make them. And so they'll pay more. Secondly, they stay more. They'll, the retention they'll stay longer. I mean, our everything we're looking at, which we're in a season where the wind's blowing right for multifamily, no doubt. But um, but the hundred percent occupancy, just about. I mean, waiting list because they're beautiful. Also, they have friends. We know if you have one friend in in a complex, your retention goes up dramatically. If you have multiple friends, it goes up even more. We see that the hotelification and the Desire for hospitality is going up in there. Um, Ash's definition of hospitality is, I thought of you before you got here. And so the intentionality of what we're doing, they notice the difference. You know, they notice that the, that they're not widgets and that makes all the difference in the world. Um, we, we know what it's like to be you. And um, so that's a big piece of it. And then also sophisticated ways to raise the capital and bring alignment. Um, there's a lot of tools that we're using around that because one thing is, is if you haven't done every part of this, you can't have the context. Most time, most of the time people work in silos, right? Like when we, when we look at the construction budget and we ask ourselves questions like, why are you doing this this way? Well, they're doing it because they didn't talk to the subs. They don't know the guys who are building the podium or they don't know the guys are doing this. So they're, they're making decisions. Based on um, not having a knowledge of the people that's doing the work, or maybe um, maybe that's the same way across other pieces, so um, we we think that there's a, there's importance that you have that same lens and detail throughout all those major pillars the construction, the design, the execution, the lease up, the marketing, the um, you know the raising of the capital, the alignment of return of the investment and return on the investment that all that should have a golden thread like a restaurant we're talking about
1: everybody talks about the the big cities that have all the you know big jobs and the all the buildings and all the infrastructure but you're building a a world where these are happening in small towns with less than 10,000 people so you have a lens into kind of how people why people are moving why people are staying are you are you um, bullish that folks will continue to kind of move back to these small towns and experience these small town feels is the goal to grow them or is the goal to just give a better place to the people that are already there or is it both
0: yes and One, one you know one thing people that invest into this there's we've never went to a place where there wasn't the money we needed. Money has never been the problem. Even in the smallest towns, there's always people with money what they know is I'm not investing into this because it's impossible I'll even get my return of my capital much less a return on. So what we have to take them is from impossible to possible to probable. And that's a that's a specific journey but I would say this, the average town we're working on that we're doing the big multifamily is bigger than 10,000 but towns of 10,000 can easily have a restored downtown and we see the downtowns as like complex mixed-use developments with fractional ownership the first thing you got to have is a vision i mean and and if you've got a McDonald's in your town or a Wendy's or burger king they're doing a million something you could have a fa- you could have a fabulous iconic restaurant too I mean, it, it it's always there. I mean, you go into town, the dollar gin's always cranking off, money. There's all there's all these businesses. Not like there's not any anything going on. It's just they all stink. So what we look at is we ask ourselves: the first thing we have to have is a patron. We need somebody with a love for that place. We don't go into a town where there's not a person that's that feels they love that place and are committed. Now, we know that we'll need somebody with the five eyes. We'll need somebody who can invest money. We need somebody with ideas. We need somebody that's implicated or their heart's tied to that place. We need someone who has influence. And we need someone who will intercede or stand in on behalf. Like our newest town we're about to go to um, is Camden, South Carolina. We just got to deal with them. A guy's a former Disney Imagineer and two or three other leaders, and they want to take this whole town home. And so uh, they're like, we want to save this town. We're investors. We want to do it to make it. We want to make, you know, make a good return and we want to do something good with it. And so I really believe this. We've seen commercial real estate become an asset class. We've seen residential and now single single family for rent become an asset class. I really believe there's potential, Chris, that one day historic towns that have been thoughtfully curated, like I'm talking about, will be their own asset class. I think it's that much potential in it.
1: That was my next question. You are uncovering this whole new way of thinking about real estate and asset classes, which is, it might just be someone that is from the old town and it's their nostalgia. But what you're talking about is rather than thinking about a building, think about an entire community and restoring uh, it becoming something that more companies say they do is we restore, you know, old towns. Is is that fair?
0: Well, and we see the value in complex mixed-use developments that have irreplaceable real estate. I mean, again, this is, to me, it seems like common sense. I mean, I think, I'm so grateful that I'm not too smart because if I was too smart, I couldn't see this stuff. I mean, I just see it simply. We've got, think about this the greenest buildings we'll ever build already exist and there's not a lot of bargains in new construction but there's bargains in buying existing square footage and doing thoughtful renovations to get there and so this is what i mean imagine it and they people it's it's like it's the difference to me from a wreck car to a to a remodeled house the same work that we're doing to build hybrid downtowns and try to build places people want to live. They already exist, but we don't have the mindset and the methodology to deal with them. And it's being driven again by the, I mean, the contractors are a lot the problem. Those guys, if you see an old building, they say, if you just tear this down, I can build just something new or faster and better and cheaper. Well, that's them. We got the wrong guy looking at the wrong project. There's nobody that can build what we can renovate to the quality, the beauty, the things. So what we do is we're able to take, imagine in like our downtown's about a million square foot of retail. And 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 it's 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 performing fabulously. But but we we got it to the place and what we did is think intentionally like where is the restaurant? What what taught us this, I kept having people come to us, we don't work for cities. We get that kind of talk all the time. Then people haven't got any money and they can't do nothing. We work for investors, people who have a vision of putting money at risk and getting it with a return. That's who we work for. Now, I would say that our people have more than just a financial lens. They want to do good and do well. That, that's the people that are attracted to us. But what we come in, we look at the downtown. Even if they don't own a building, we still plan it for them so they can set a vision and help the people that do own it build a relationship with them. But we'll plan a whole area and say, "Listen, here's where the restaurant needs to be. Here's where the dresses should be. Here's what the, we we plan it like it's a complex development because we had these guys come over trying to think of the name of their group, but they Bayer, I think, or something. They came over, they build big communities, and they'll have like a fifty-person team to build a million square foot community. And, and t- downtowns take it on with one investor and in a main have part-time main street director." Like, dude, you're you're sunk. So, what we're doing is bringing sophistication and models. We've modeled eighty percent of everything we do as a model. You can see it; it makes sense. Now, I, I say twenty percent of what we do is miracles, and you just got to pray for them. That stuff is is I can't box that thing, but I can tell you, we keep having them. So, but but that's what we do. We view it like a complex mixed use development, and we place everything. And understand how it will work best. That's kind of the way we do it. We know where the we know where the anchors go. We know what fills in the blanks, and then we also build a criteria of how you'll get there. You may start with C plus and move to B plus and move to A plus. We don't start building the town out like a beautiful, you know, Austin new development that they spent seven hundred dollars a foot or whatever, million dollars a foot. Whatever they do, it's just we we start where we are, and we step forward of a plan of continual growth and. And success, where the the investors flourishing, the town's flourishing, and even the people in the community. And our definition of flourishing is when the people who have the least are experiencing the most. We think it's flourishing. So if the dishwasher's not flourishing, we've missed it.
1: All right, I want to spend a few minutes because there, there's probably a lot of people listening that are super intrigued, and so I want to just get into kind of like the nuts and bolts and, and nuance whether it's Camden, South Carolina, or whatever, when folks are coming to you, do they already need to own the real estate? Um, and if they don't, from your perspective, how uh, confident can you be that you can execute a plan if they don't own a lot of it? And as soon as you know one or two things good start happening, there's a rush to buy all the other stuff and the plan just kind of stalls. Like what needs to be in place for y'all to say, we have a project that we can now go put 10 years into um, does that make sense?
0: It, it does. It's a great question, actually, and and the answer again is yes. And so we come to people who own almost everything. Sometimes we come to people that, people that own nothing. We have to we have to vet where they are. So, like, I had one group recently look at um a place in Texas, not far from you, Le, um, Oh Lagrange, Texas. So we took a look at that town, and they were interested in buying a, a good piece of the town. And so one thing we have to do is, and you're right, when we start buying or people know that we're buying, we do have a bit of that rush on stuff. So we do have to ask ourselves, what's the MVP, the minimum viable project? We've got to figure out what's the mass we got to have to create what we want to create. Because for us, momentum is the magic. That's why we call our formula the momentum method. No momentum makes you look worse than you are. And a lot of momentum makes you look better than you are. So so we've learned about towns. And if, if I ask somebody if a town's growing, they're going to tell me how they feel. So you want to make them feel something at the right time. Like we can grow a town without people feeling much. And then we can make them feel something. So you have to think about that as you're growing. I'll give you an example. We bought, me and Ash bought these. And this is a residential example. But we, we wanted to fix the worst neighborhood in our, in our in our city. We bought like 14 houses, seven on each side of a street. And they were junky, 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 nobody living in them. And what I did is I renovated the inside of one side of the street and the three sides of the back of those houses. And then I got ready and we we renovated the front, cut the trees and jumped across the street, and renovated the outside three on the other ones. And our, everybody in the community like, the whole place has changed. Well, it's because we made them feel something. Right. And so we do that in town some too but but when someone comes to us we look at the place and we have there's certain things we we really need we can do it with one block but we really need two blocks of historic downtown fabric to make it work really well without building infill we need certain um you know we say we can win one gas tank away i love winning when it's 2 hours away if if there's a population of people and when we build a place, normally it's a destination first. It starts Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We can't start Monday mornings. And we bring them in usually by iconic food. I don't have a plan that works without food and hospitality. So I got I say so much meaningful happens at the table. You decide who to marry, where to bury. Fellowship happens at the table. We gotta have food. Nobody's going staying at a place that has bad food. And um and so we start with hospitality. We start with having some fractional overnight stay. We start with serving a specific niche. Um, think about this. If you've got a small town, maybe it's two blocks each way. Like I looked at another town outside of um, Alito, Texas. We had some had some post approaches from there. And we're actually working in the town that's named for Alito, Illinois right now. We've got clients that are buying up. They bought over 40 buildings in Alito, Illinois. But um, anyway, what what we did is we say, you got to be known for something, okay? So, for example, if, if you had all different kinds of shops and nobody knows what you're about, it's like, we got a dress shop, we got a men's shop, we got a skate center, we've got a bowling, you got all this stuff. It's just like somebody threw a bunch of stuff on there. But if you can intentionally do it, you may say, this little town is going to be known for women's apparel, we're going to have women's shoes. We're going to have women's bags. We're going to have great dress shops. We're going to have custom-made jeans. We're going to have a jewelry. If you get clusters where people can know what they're going there for, nobody can compete with you if you're known for something. And Opelika, what we want to be known for is unique food and hospitality, food and beverage, music and art. That's it. That's what we want to be known for. We want everything to line around that. And we we say no to businesses all the time that don't align with that. Because if not, you're bringing them into your pool, and if you don't watch it, you'll have somebody poop in the pool you're all swimming in. It's crazy. you got to have it for something. And so people do this kind of sophistication when they build a big development, right? They're thinking about how it's fit together. Towns don't have this. So if they come to us with a town they love, we do a survey and ask ourselves what's possible and get them kind of to a minimum viable working uh, portfolio, if that's what they want to do. They come with some buildings. We ask, what do you need to acquire? And even in the sense of like, we did a project Kenosha, Wisconsin. They came to us with simply a large building. They wanted to do a brewery and a event space to, to be catalytic for their downtown. And we helped them do it because we had experience in those businesses. So we um helped them do a project and they we helped them do the RFP, they uh, got it from the city for a dollar. They did, you know, th- whatever, three, $4 million worth of work to it. And it's flourishing. And we took them from being a commercial builder to understanding what it means to be a community investor. And now they're doing more of that. So we kind of coached them into that world. Did I ever answer your question? You did. And uh,
1: my, I have one more question. Um, and then we'll bring it home. This has been more than I could have asked for, but again my my business hat's on and then i'm just thinking about this is okay i approach you i own 50 buildings in a in a small town uh we got a lot of work to do how do you from your side if i if if somebody here is listening and they're the next guy that's or girl that's going to call you with their you know, big dream is how do y'all even, um, what does a contract look like? I I imagine just hundreds of contracts of, okay, for this business, this building, is it one master agreement? Like how do, how does it work if I'm working with you?
0: So it kind of organically grew like everything else. And, um, I mean, our team and all this, so they come to us We used to just, I didn't know what to charge, so I'd do it for people and say, I tell you what, I'll fix your problem and you pay me what you think it's worth. Thank goodness I did that for generous people. They paid me good. It was good. We started charging for fees. So now we'll still do a project where we just tell you, this is how long it's going to take. This is what it's going to cost. We scope the work out and give them a price. Sometimes we do it for fees and equity, where we take a smaller amount of fees and we become their partner in the project and take some of it in equity. And they love that because we're alongside them. And the third iteration of this is fees, equity, and we bring capital. Now, sometimes we'll come in, we'll lay out the project, we'll get a piece of equity, and we've got a lot of capital friends who want to, if if we're in it, they want to be in it. So we've got access to capital to do it that way. So what we try to do, there's really kind of two levels. We do project level or portfolio level. So projects, we come in and help them understand what the projects are. And we may have a specific, like, John, help us say, this side of the street. We're going to launch a restaurant. We're going to start a retail store, brewery, distillery, and a a concept that's going to be you know gaming and coffee. Well, we'll build. We'll help with that. Or they say, hey, we've got a portfolio. Usually, I mean, it takes it. it there's no hard fast, but ten million to fifteen million is probably the minimum portfolio size that we can serve, and they can get value depending on what they're doing in a downtown and how much they bought the stuff for. But, um, again, all the way up to a couple of hundred million, three, 400 million. Um, but they, what we do is we come alongside them and we say, you can either be a retainer client and we set up these frameworks of how we add value to them and grow their team. Usually the C suite and, you know, and the people that are there, or we'll do a specific project with starting line, finish line, and deadline. So like one of our clients come along recently and they want to build a boutique hotel um, on their event business and add in some other components. And we designed, helped them work with the designers of the project and played that general contractor vision and got it from a dream to everything lined up. And then they can choose whether they want us to come and help them with training wheels to get it executed. So Um, it's, it's a bit customized, but normally, um, we come along and help people from every stage of just, I've got a project I want to do in dreaming to, I've had this a while and it's not growing.
1: Yep. All right, John, this is more than I could ask for. I appreciate it, man. This was great.
0: Man, it's fun. I feel like I rambled on the whole time. I hope you can, I hope you can get something good out of it. I think more of
1: this stuff should happen. You kind of, I I haven't, you know, we spoke a little bit. I assembled, uh, our company assembled almost 90 acres of land in Fort Worth back in 2014 and 15 and worked on a kind of a revitalization. Um, as I listened to you, there's a lot of things we probably did right. And there's things I wish I had known what I know now uh, that I would have done differently. But um, yeah, this is just fascinating stuff and the world needs more people like you.
0: Uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be doing it. I, I, I think I give hope to idiots that people say, hey, if that guy can do something, anybody can. I might like, post your child for idiots. But uh, I'm grateful to be doing it. And I, I love what I'm doing. I'm so darn excited. I, I mean, I, I'm just, I, I never dreamed. I mean, what do you do when your dreams come true and then you dream bigger and they come true? And um, it's it's in all the areas. I mean, I was thinking last night as I looked at Ash, I thought, man, why does this beautiful lady love me and want to be with me? I mean, why am I more attracted to her today than meeting her 30 years ago? Dude, it's like, it's incredible. I mean, <laughs> I just, I didn't get what I deserved. And, um, you know, that whole thing when a frog's, I mean, when a turtle's on a fence post, he didn't get there by himself. I. I got a lot to be grateful for. I could hang out with you for days though, but we're gonna do it in person here soon. I can't wait to get to get to see you and us spend some time together. It's gonna to be a lot of fun.
1: We are, man. I'm gonna we're gonna make it happen. You told me on that walk I was on the other day. I said, Yeah, maybe later this year or next year. You said, dude, you need to get your priorities straight.
0: Right, <laughs> <laughs> dude. Get your stuff together. It's like you having a great deal that's sitting We don't sound like I get that thing next year. You wouldn't say that, man. You'd be on it. You'd be (laughs) be jumping on it. This is more important than the big deal.
1: It is. All right, John. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll talk to you soon, man.
0: Thank you, my friend. Talk to you soon.
1: Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight
0: Up Podcasts.